Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Obie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. What you are about to hear is an in-depth conversation between a father and son about growing up black and being a black male in today's society. You will also hear our observations about the state of mental health in the United States. I'm 16 years old. And at the time of this interview, I am a ripe 56 years old. So my first question for you is, what does it mean to you to be a black man? What does it mean to be a black man? It means to be of African heritage. It means to be born of a legacy in which only the stronger survive the middle passage. So I see myself as as a descendant of the strongest who survived the middle passage. It can be stressful. It can be you have to you have to bring your A game in my mind. You have to be it's it's almost like sports really. Um there there's constantly an opponent who is trying to trip you up. Uh, so you have to be aware of that. Um, you have to be aware that people don't see you like they see everybody else, that there's this thing called subconscious bias and it influences just about any and everything. An example that I shared I think last week is as an author of six books, the last two books I did, I decided not to put my, my, a picture of myself as an author, as most people do on the back of the book, because I thought it would negatively, negatively affect uh, sales. I decided to use my name Fred Opie rather than Frederick Douglass Opie because it has the implications to someone who sees Frederick Douglass uh, that this is an African-American. So I, I, it's a constant thinking about strategy and, and how to get over without being put under. What was it like growing up in Croton? But Croton was 99.9%. Caucasian, working class, a small segment of uh, upper class, mostly working class and middle class, and there were a few African-American families in the community. I very much understand what it's like for you and your sister to be one of the few. For me, growing up, there were periods in my life where I definitely felt different, didn't like feeling different, didn't like that I was different, was very self-conscious that I was different. A lot of it was a perception I had of myself, not necessarily what other people thought of me, but there were periods where I definitely obsessed about the fact that I'm different and thought that I didn't have the same opportunities, whether it be dating, relationships, friendships, whatever. So it, it was tough. There were There were times where I definitely considered suicide because of depression it got that bad. But, you know, a lot of it in retrospect for me is some of the same stuff that you go through when you're a kid and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you can do and can't do. So there were there were some tough times. But at the same time, in retrospect, I think that every every child going through adolescence is trying to figure out who they are and what that means. And they have periods of low self-esteem for one reason or not. So for me... The low self-esteem also came from being from a family that was not uh, upper middle class where anything I asked for could be provided. Uh, that you know, Sometimes that was tough to see my friends with 
new sneakers or money to go to town for lunch or things that I thought I needed. But in retrospect, you know, I think my parents did the best they could. Uh, I think my classmates said some things because they were ignorant. Uh, some folks, and there were there were a couple incidents where I could say that was racism, but more probably more so than anything else, it was just it was tough being an adolescent. You mentioned depression. I don't feel like that's something that's talked a lot and about in the African American community. Period, especially with African American males. I I think that we're expected to be these big, strong guys who are. Invincible. Who are invincible. Were, were you diagnosed with depression when you were a kid? I wasn't diagnosed with depression until I was in grad school. I had ADHD from a very young age, but when I was a kid, people didn't really know what it was. They said you had a learning disability. They gave you assessment, but I really didn't know what I had. It was when I was in grad school and I hit a wall going through comprehensive exams, which are really tough exams that teacher said to me, something's wrong here. You're one of the best students we ever had, but we can't read this exam. I was put in an exam situation where I didn't have time to cope or compensate. And I'd compensated all through out graduate school because I wanted to finish and I had a high degree of motivation. So first thing I did was go get assessed. But then I also called home to my father and said, look, I know I had some kind of learning disability. Do you know what I had? He said, I still have a copy of it. So he actually sent me a copy of it. I probably still have it someplace that described me as a kid in maybe second or third grade. I don't really know what it was. I do know in grad school, part of the accommodations that the school had to provide for me was counseling therapy. And the therapist that I dealt with, she described me as dealing with severe depression. Part of the severe depression came from just uh, not having a, a, a strong relationship with my mother, a terrible relationship with my mother, very difficult situation. She definitely suffered from depression. My father never got, my mother never got analyzed, but just from, from me and my experience and talking with doctors, my mother definitely dealt with severe depression. Some things we talked about, sleeping excessively, um, not, not getting up, and out and having, and particularly in the wintertime. My mother really suffered in the winter from time from depression. So there were some characteristics I saw in my mom. My father, he said that he thought he was dealing with depression sometimes in his life. My grandmother, it's funny that we're talking about this. My, my father's mother, there was a period when he was born that after she gave birth to my dad, she went through severe postpartum depression to the point where she had to be institutionalized. I remember my father told me that. I don't know how long she was institutionalized, but she was institutionalized while for depression. And you could only imagine a black woman in white Westchester County, North Tarrytown, on what kind of diagnosis, who was given a diagnosis, and what kind of treatment they were given. I mean, I don't even want to know probably what they did. I'd suffered from some depression. I probably have learned how to deal with it and know the symptoms, but... It's real, and I, I agree with you. My mother, to the day she died, when I, as a graduate student, told her I was diagnosed with severe ADHD, to the day I she died, she was in denial. She thought this was another example 
of white folks labeling black males so that they could control black male bodies. She, she just didn't, she didn't understand it at all. My father had a very different view. He wished he had gotten the support and help that I had. He thought he would have done a lot more, but he couldn't. But so, you know, I just, I learned early on what are the things that you got to do in terms of health, fitness, diet, to help deal with depression. But it's something that I have to be aware of. And most African-Americans, I think, respond like my mother. Now, I've also realized that it's not just African-Americans because there have been a lot of other folks from different ethnic nationalities tell me that their parents respond the same way. They're in denial or they think it's, you know, you're weak if you have depression, something's wrong with you, instead of, as I said to you, if they cut their hand and they had to go get stitches, they would totally understand. But the fact that somebody has depression they have a cut or some kind, something that's causing pain and hemorrhaging symbolically uh, in their mind, they would think that's a sign of weakness rather than it needs to be medicated or dealt with or treated. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So how about your siblings? Were they receptive to this? Did you tell them about your ADHD diagnosis or were and depression? Well, your uncle, Randy, he died in 1989 mm-hmm. uh, during the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. So he never lived to the point to see that. And I don't know, never, never had a discussion with him about his mental health, but I would imagine as a black man that was living a gay life, he probably had to deal with depression because mm-hmm. people didn't come out. People didn't accept it. I don't know if I've ever had a discussion with my brother Marshall about my mental health mm-hmm. and the fact that I take medication, I have diagnosis. I don't. It's it's all outlined in the in my book, my memoir I wrote. There's a lot of sensitive things about family history in there that some things I had to wait till my mother and father died before I was comfortable actually writing about. No. Um It'd be interesting. I gotta have that. Maybe me, you, and your uncle can have that conversation. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. I would imagine if both my parents talked about it or exhibited qualities of or, or characteristics of depression, that he probably had to deal with it too. I just don't know. What was it like being uh, one of the only African American athletes on your lacrosse team at Syracuse and at Herkimer and all through high school? I, I I know I'm going through the same thing right now. Still, it's very predominantly white. So what was it like for you? We're sitting in my office and I'm looking at, there's a picture of me in my senior year in high school. There's a picture of me from the junior college from Herkimer. There's a picture of me in Syracuse and there's a picture of me in U.S. national team. So I mean, the one at my senior year in high school, I'm playing in a game against Fox Lane. I know I'm the only, as my mother would say, fly in the buttermilk on that field. Mm-hmm. The one at Herkimer, interesting enough, that picture of Herkimer, Coach Ricky Soul is in that game. So there's another African-American on the field in that game. Mm-hmm. And then the game U.S. against Australia, I'm the only African-American there. The one up in the game in Syracuse, I had a teammate named Matt Holman who was from Summit, New Jersey. But he's very involved in Uganda Lacrosse Foundation. So I'm we're back. We were roommates for, for a semester at Syracuse. I had the opportunity to meet Jim Brown. Lacrosse 
was such an important part of my life. It still is. It was one of the few areas where I had a lot of success. It was one of the few areas where my ego, which everybody has an ego and everybody's ego needs to be maintained. I just loved it. I mean, it was just, so when I was playing, I'm sure there's a part in my consciousness that I'm the only African-American, but really 95% of the time, I'm a member of this team and we have to win. We have to do what's necessary to work together to win. That's, mm-hmm. you know, and these are kids that I played with in high school, you know, since it's funny because I would describe my my relationship with most of them as a very good relationship. There's very few of them that I've had a close relationship with, one I've had an extremely close relationship with. You're 95% of the time when you're on the field, you're thinking about, I'm a member of this team. We have to be together. We have to work together to win. And that's about it. So I locked in. You know, I'm playing. I'm thinking about that. I'm not thinking so much. I can't remember any incidents of folks on the sidelines saying things. But I'm also one of those players that I was aware of fans, but I had the ability to kind of block them out. Yeah, Yeah. just block them out. At Herkimer in upstate New York and a very rural uh, county, you know, that's where you'd think there would have been more incidents and problems um, mm-hmm. living in that, that community, playing on the team, but there was, I had a really good coach. Again, I just, lacrosse in many ways was a sanctuary for me. It was a place where I felt good. Lacrosse for many people in Native American culture and society is a way you dealt with your spiritual health as well as your, your emotional health. That's how lacrosse was for me. I think I think it's that way for a lot of a lot of guys that I played with. Lacrosse was how we kept our sanity when things outside the the, the lines of the field weren't going so well, and maybe mm-hmm. things at home were a little crazy. Lacrosse made sense. There were clear rules, clear boundaries, and if you played by them, you pretty much could advance as much as you wanted to. Now, in high school, I was aware of a couple. Of notable black players. There was a guy named, um, what was Ed's name? Ed Ed Howard. He was an All-American at Hobart. There was a poster in my high school. I don't think I have a picture of it here. There's a poster in my high school of Ed uh, playing a game, doing this really cool over-the-head check. And I remember that was probably the first time I saw, maybe one of the first times I saw um, other African-Americans. Then also in high school, Ithaca High School, which has got really good lacrosse, came down and scrimmaged our varsity team. And Ithaca had a couple of African-Americans on that team who were good players. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that. I remember going to West Point. West Point Military Academy was about 30 minutes from my house. I watched games all the time. They had a goalie named Jose Oliverio. He was a Puerto Rican descent, but very dark skinned. So I identify with him. He was an All-American great player. Then Navy had a player named Sid Abernathy. He was the second African-American after Jim Brown to be a first-team All-American. Sid was a phenomenal player. I identified with Sid. He was an attackman. I was an attackman. So, you know, there were enough people like that that I saw that kind of latched on to and never felt like this wasn't my game. By the time I got to to be a senior – I excelled and I typically was one of the best players on the field with the exception when we played against Yorktown because they had five uh, All-American players. But, you know, during the summer times, I played with those guys. So I had a, I had a, 
a, a good sense of self-esteem about lacrosse, love lacrosse. When I got to from Herkimer to Syracuse, I was more self-conscious about being a lacrosse player because we now had Syracuse football, Syracuse basketball, yeah. and most of those guys, most of those teams were African Americans. Mm-hmm. And so for them to see me and me see them, that was more, I probably became more conscious of being one of the few during that time. Um, my, some of my closest friends, though, were football players. Yeah. And football players had a high level of status on campus. So my association with them also raised my status. And then again, Syracuse was ranked number you know, two in the country. Um, most of the time I was there, both years I was there, we played a national championship. So in terms of the status that you have and how you feel about yourself when you're on a, a really good team, that probably helped. Um, yeah. Another time where I became probably the most self-conscious of being a black lacrosse player is when I made the U.S. national team. So the tryouts for the U.S. national team, I think they had, if I remember correctly, something like 300 people invited to the tryouts. Ultimately, they chose 26 of us to make that team. But at the tryouts, I drove to the tryouts with uh, Danny Williams, All-American, defenseman, African-American from West Point and Hempstead High School. Aaron Jones, uh, All-American defenseman or Cornell, African-American defenseman from Hempstead. I mean, so going to the tryouts is three black guys driving to the tryouts. I don't remember who the other person in the car was, but it might have just been us three. And then when we got to the tryouts, there was another guy who played at Penn State, uh, All-American. It was a midfielder. I can't even remember his name. But there may have been an an additional two. There was at least three of us. There might have been another two or three guys at the tryouts. I felt confident. I I was playing for a club team called Long Island Lacrosse Club. We won either we would win the club championship or we'd come in second place. On that team, we had a Native American, a guy named Nico Red Arrow, dark skinned uh, Native American. I was the only other African American on that team. Played for the indoor team of the Long Island Saints. Only black guy on that team. <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the stuff that I that had been in my mind. Wow. Once I made the U.S. national team. Everything was fine until we got to Australia. That's when I felt like the only, more so than anything else. Now, there's a couple things with being an African-American on that team, also being a very committed Christian on that team. That made me feel very different from everybody else, my, my ethnicity and my faith. And that was a very tough, lonely time. I remember being in Australia. I remember that. I went to a store one time to get a card. And I purchased a bunch of cards of Aborigines. You know what they look like, right? Mm -hmm. A white woman behind the counter said, why are you picking out all these Aborigines on the card? I said, I looked at her and I looked at the card, looked at her and I said, because they look like me. And she said, they're nothing like you. And I was, you know, and I kind of was like, wow, lady, you, you really don't have a clue. It just like was like to be a blatantly racist thing. And what she, in my mind, was saying, these are savages. savages. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you're nothing like that in the way you dress, the way you talk. And I, I, felt, I felt an extreme kinship with the Aborigines. And I actually uh, had the opportunity while I was there 
to get to know some of them. I also remember this is something that a lot of folks who are Caucasian don't even they don't even know this. They don't even get this. That when you are an African American, just about everywhere you go where there's not a large African American population, when you see an African American, you acknowledge each other. Mm-hmm. It's almost the same way you do when you are clearly exactly. You see another cross player it's like, hey, you know, no, it doesn't matter who you are. It's just like a, you know, it's like, and if another cross player didn't respond, you'd be like, what's wrong with that fool? It's the same thing with African Americans. Mm-hmm. So, when I was in Australia, Aboriginals clearly, when they would see me on the street, they would get like a nod with their head, or they would wave, or they would smile, or you know, like you know, pump fist. That was like a given. But I also had been in situations in my life, and I remember being a young black kid your age and not necessarily feeling totally comfortable in my black skin. I knew enough from my mother and father that you acknowledge other black people. So I knew that. I knew that. But I also remember being around black folks other than my cousins and kind of like, you know, in my Am I handling myself the right way? Am I getting along with the right way? Do I stick out? Do they know I grew up around all white folks? You know, do they know I'm cool? Will they accept me? I remember all that kind of insecurity being around black folks. And it, and all that really did not leave until I got to Syracuse and I became close friends with these these black guys on the football team where they, for lack of a better word, schooled me on what it meant to be black and be comfortable. But I also remember on campus at Syracuse, I mean, there was a black population, but it wasn't huge. I remember walking by black folks on campus who were obviously not comfortable who they were. They would not acknowledge. They wouldn't speak to you. I, I can I can remember the number of times, even here on campus at Babson, where black kids, it's almost like they go out of their way to make sure they don't have to make eye contact to acknowledge you. So. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a long answer, but it's a lot about what it means to be black in America, to be honest with you. No, at the same time, let me say this. You also, as a black man in America, at least me, with me, you have to go out of your way, out of your way to make black women feel comfortable around you if they are around your age group, 10 years younger to within... 10 years older, I find a necessity, a contract that nobody asked me to sign up for of making black women 10 years younger to 10 years older and my age feel comfortable around me because too often African-American men have defined being a male as being hyper-masculine. Mm-hmm. And thinking that it's all women are in love with them or the insecurity that makes them think that they need to make some kind of overture, sexual overture towards black women. So I have found the necessity in my life of doing any and everything I can to be polite to black women and not because you can see I can see in their body language when I'm walking towards them. I literally can feel their body language with here comes another insult from another idiot. Here I got I got to deal with another shot from an idiot. And that's when a lot of times when you're walking and I see uh, a brother, a group of brothers or a single brother 
who thinks they're God's gift to women, and when they come across a woman who's attractive, they make cat calls. They're just, they're just terrible. And so I, I, and for, I don't know how long I've been like that, and I don't know. I've never had this discussion with other black men, but that is something that I have noticed. At a lesser level, but a similar level, making white women feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's typically, you know, a white woman that could be as much as 10 to 20 years younger than me. You know, somebody who's in from, I, we were just in Trader Joe's Sunday. And there was a very attractive looking African-American girl. It looked like she was an undergrad. But it's almost like I had to go out of my way. Chase, Chase was with me. When my daughter's with me, it's usually not a problem. Like the girl felt more uncomfortable, but you can see them. They almost like cringe when they see you coming because they feel they're going to be verbally assaulted in some way. Uh, I think it's the same thing. Not the verbal assault, but I see I see white women when I go into an elevator or I'm passing them on the street when it's just me and them. If it's in the evening, you can. I mean, me personally, I I sense an insecurity that I feel almost obligated to do something to make them feel secure. Seriously. And I shouldn't need to do that, but I do. I mean, I think I started feeling that from a very, very, very young age. I mean, I remember once I was in the library, I think I was maybe seven, eight, and this this woman, I smiled at her, and she, she immediately became uncomfortable. I was like, and I think I told you about this as soon as after it happened. Mm-hmm. And... I was so confused as to why that would make somebody so uncomfortable. I don't think she really saw a seven or eight year old kid. Exactly. She she saw just a black male, which to me I I think at that age I was not cog- cognizant of what it meant to be a black male. I'm still not fully cognizant of what that means because I still, I don't, I have 16 years of life experience. Yeah. I, I do think that you have to put in extra work to make people feel comfortable around you, which is, yeah. Which weird. is an unreasonable burden to live with. But my experience, when you ask the question, what does it mean to be a black male? I think it means to be viewed as a predator. That's true. It's unfortunate. And then you have some folks among us who look like us who are, which doesn't help. But the stereotype is that you're a predator, not that you're educated, not that you're thoughtful, not that you're empathetic, uh, that that you are sensitive. And, and all these things are contrary, unfortunately, to how many men, period, not even black, but men, period, are educated they're educated to think that a real man is not sensitive a real man is not empathetic a real man does not seek to view women as equals but as sexual objects the messages of what it means to be a male never mind an african-american male are so screwed up now here's a story i remember my father telling me this story you know your grandfather was a sing sing prison guard Mm -hmm. he did that job for a long time and he he used to tell me about how much he hated being around the locker room with the younger African-American guards. So, my, you know, my dad would be in his late 40s, probably close to my age, 56. 
And these are guys who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And my, I remember him saying this. He couldn't stand how these guys would get in there. And just talk about their sexual exploits. Exactly. In front of, and what he hated about it was in front of the white guards who were his age or, you know, or a little bit younger. And, and those guys didn't talk like that. Mm-hmm. It was the black guys that got in there and were talking all this trash about what they did with this woman and that woman. You know, some were married guys just, you know, sneaking around the wife. And I remember that just used to infuriate my father because he was nothing like that and didn't want any associate like that. And he didn't raise us to, be, to think like that. So it just used to make him so angry. Like, not angry like he wanted to hurt them, but just like, why you got to show your butt? That's yeah. what he would say. Why you got to show your butt? Mm-hmm. That's the expression he would use. Yeah. Like, if you're going to do that, fine. Go do that in the black locker room. Don't bring it. Why do you need? Why do you need to fulfill the stereotypes? The stereotypes that they all have about you. Why do you need to do that? That's exactly how he would look at it. You know, here, here's a here's another thing related to your question, which I get real emotional thinking about it. But if your grandfather was here to say the same thing, to answer the same questions, because imagine being the dad of three black boys. And you're a prison guard. And you're looking at prisoners. That must be scary. Yeah. Who I'm are not that much now. not that much I mean, older. They could be my age. They give you 16, yes. 17, 18 kids. And he did that, you know, for 30 something years. And I know I know he I know he had to be hard on us because he was probably scared that we'd end up like that. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he ran a tight ship, there's no doubt about it. I, I am sure at a subconscious level that I am tougher on you and your sister because I don't want you guys to turn out like some of the knuckleheads out here that look like, you know, like us in, in terms of uh, skin pigmentation. But I just thought about that. You know, my dad would work overtime sometimes, three or four times a week. And he's seeing these black men that by the time I'm in high school and college, you know, they're not that different in age, you know, and I go visit prisons now. And I look at these guys. I mean, they're not that much older than you. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there going, and I mean, and guys, good-looking guys, smart guys, intelligent guys. And you're going, man, you know, the best and the brightest is locked up here in this jail because they made a decision when they were young. And it, a lot of the decision had to do with the definition they had around them about what it meant to be a black man and what it meant to be a man. And you know, if you don't have that right definition, you're going to make some decisions that will be long-lasting and life-changing. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Start with your gift. Understand and monetize it while serving others with it. My lacrosse memoir of having ADHD and just how hard school was for me. It was never easy. Read a sample chapter of Start With Your Gift on my website, fredopi.com. You can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, on amazon.com. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. 
Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. You mentioned visiting prisons. Visiting those prisons, do you, how many of, the, of, of those guys do you see that you, I know you, you tell me this a lot, that you, you, you're convinced that they may have ADHD, dyslexia, depression, something, something of that sort that was not diagnosed maybe because of the environment that they were in. They didn't have the resources mm-hmm. to get that diagnosis. So how, like, how important do you think it is to get that kind of help? And Remember when I got my analysis, my final assessment for ADHD as a graduate student, late 20s. And the very final test, the doctor is looking at the results. He's looking at me. He's looking at the results. He's looking at me. And I'm go, I go, what? What? He goes, what you say you're doing? I said, I'm in a PhD program at Syracuse. He goes, wow. He goes, you don't just got ADHD. You got a severe case. He said, most of the people I know with the kind of results you're showing me, a lot of them are incarcerated because they're just dysfunctional. They're impulsive and they can't make decisions that are good decisions because of the disorder. I mean, that statement alone says to me there are probably a lot of people who are incarcerated because when they were younger and their frontal cortex wasn't fully developed and they were impulsive because of ADHD. And again, I think it's important for people to understand ADHD has a lot of amazing things to it that helped me to be very successful. Mm-hmm. If you look at a lot of entertainers entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs a lot of them have ADHD mm-hmm. but it's the positive part they typed into tapped into I think a lot of these other folks you're talking about I, I don't know but it would be amazing if somebody could do a study and assess the mental health and diagnose and assess prisoners maybe when guys came out it's the same way you know you got these football players who after their career is over or they donate their, their, their brains to science to see if they have, you know, concussion problems. It'd be interesting if you had prisoners who would be do, do the same thing. And I, I, I suspect there's a large part. And if you don't, if you're not in an environment, me and you were talking about schools, if you're not in an environment where people understand that this is a person that thinks different and that this is not a person who's deviant, expel them from school or I mean and that just sets, sends them on the track of being in the streets and doing things that are gonna have them I mean it makes sense it would make sense that I mean cause I was diagnosed with ADHD second grade second grade and I was having problems in school before right yeah if I if I had grown up in a community where and if, if I had parents that did not have the resources or the money to get me checked out I probably would've been kicked out of school a long time ago if i'm in a rough community i have nothing else to do what am i going to end up doing i'm going to be on the street it's it's unfortunate it's really sad cost so much money to get evaluated adhd is still not fully understood by the public it's i can literally see the hallway right now I'm 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 walking down the hallway or third floor a PVC, Pierre Van Cortland Middle School in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. And if you go down the hallway and you are heading west, that is the room for special services. And that's where I had to go to get special services. It felt like 
an invisible gauntlet to walk down the hallway into that room mm-hmm. and get help. It I, was a terrible feeling. I remember in middle school, I would try and take the empty hallways because I, I think it was sixth period. I had um, my special learning block and I would go to a special room with teachers that would help me get homework done, help me with different skills to help me keep improving with ADHD and whatnot. And I would take the emptiest hallways to get there, make sure my friends didn't see me going there. I don't think a lot of the kids in the, knew that I had ADHD. They just knew that I would disappear six blocks. So they had yeah. to know something was going on. But at the same time, that they didn't really know. And I didn't want them to know. Because I, I felt ashamed of something mm-hmm. that I couldn't even control. I, I don't know how we can change it, but I do think that the perception of ADHD and depression and mental illness and uh, disabilities and and uh, just people the people thinking differently needs to be the 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 way that people look at that needs to be changed. Beginning every semester, first day of class, I disclose. I have ADHD. If you see something on the board or in the syllabus that's spelled wrong, it probably is. If you know how to spell it right, raise your hand and tell me and help me. And realize I have an ego. If you do not know how to spell it right, don't raise your hand because you're not helping me. And I say it in a humorous way, but it's a full disclosure. But when I tell students like that during that one-on-one conversation, I have ADHD, I take medication, it's been extremely helpful, I have a coach I meet with, he helps me deal with depression, issues, strategy, parenting, being a husband, all those things so I can be more effective as a professor. They go, you? I go, yeah, me. And they go, wow. And then they go get help. I, I've probably had three or four students that I can think of in the last five years that I've had this conversation with. And what I've learned is that it's not till they see somebody who they view as successful who's who explains to them that they would not have the success they would have without that support then they go oh and then they go and help a lot of people they just think it's it's for weak people mm-hmm. and you know that makes no more rationality than if you broke your foot and you refuse to take crutches at the emergency room to get home. No, I'm good. I'm good. No, you're not good. Matter of fact, your foot's never going to heal unless you take the crutches. And the support that you need, everybody needs the support. Um, but a lot of folks just, they don't want Having this conversation about depression and ADHD is making me, it's bringing a lot of things to light and making me realize a lot of things. Like the male suicide, right, for example. The male suicide rate is high. And I know several of my friends that have contemplated suicide. And they just don't tell their parents about it. They're not diagnosed with depression at all. I do think that has something to do with how society tells men to be. Suck it up. Suck it up. Yeah. I never really thought of that. I mean, some people say it's because men are more reckless. Or they're more they're more immature. Or more emotionally volatile. A big contributor to that, if you ask people's families, people who have lost their loved ones to suicide, if you ask their families, 
about how their kids were acting or how their their loved one was acting before they took their lives, you'd probably find several symptoms of depression or ADHD or already diagnosed ADHD. People talk about toxic masculinity. It's still taught to young boys and young men that it's not okay to express your emotions. If you're going to express your emotions, don't do it for too long. Express your emotions, then then get rid of it. Or that anger is uh, is is the best emotion. That that's acceptable. It's, it's it's acceptable. The state of mental health, especially in this country, needs to be addressed. I think it's something that is not taken seriously. I, people still th- see therapists as whack jobs, or they see therapy as something for weak people. I mean, we talk about this with athletes. How many athletes have personal coaches? Personal coaches, or and everybody thinks you know. I mean, you know, that's only been probably in the last I mean, when Kevin two decades. Love, when Kevin Love brought that up, that was a huge story. You know, LeBron James has a personal trainer that's does all. I mean, he tells LeBron, "This is what you're going to eat. This is where we're going to work out. This is how we're going to cool down." And that's one of the reasons why he's so much better. But what if, in addition to the physical part, I don't know if he does LeBron, so don't get me wrong. But what what if he had somebody help working on his mental part, which I think probably his personal trainer incorporates. But you know, I, I told you, it's a whole field of sports psychology that is the beginning of tapping into this and some of the best programs in the country will have folks like that come and I think that's one reason why John Gordon is doing so well he essentially is doing sports psychology he's helping people to tap in to both what do you need to be your best mentally as well as spiritually and I think a lot of folks you know, when Kevin Love or folks like that come out and say it, you know, are they ostracized? Is it is it just as difficult for somebody to come out about their sexuality to come out and say, look, I, I suffer with this mental health disorder? Being a parent of somebody who has diagnosed depression and ADHD, uh, being the husband of somebody who has diagnosed ADHD, being somebody who grew up their whole life having ADHD, what would be your advice to uh, a parent who is raising a kid with ADHD what would, or depression or both? If you're not aware of your child's not only ADHD but also depression or what other areas where they need support, it could be really difficult. You can't expect your child to be their best self if they're not having those needs met you know i always say that man is spirit soul and body and that your soul is bad end up your mind will and your emotions if your soulless realm is not healthy it doesn't matter if your body is built like uh dwayne the rock john yeah i was thinking the rock you know you can be built like a rock but if your soul is crumbling there's not much you can do now but if you have a really strong soul and then your body has cancer? You see what I'm saying? You're limited too. I don't think we tap into the part that we are made like God. We're a triune being. So I think as a parent, it's the same thing. You have you can't just get focused on, 
all right, you know, this kid, he really he, he really needs to lift weights because he's, you know, he's really skinny and he's getting beat up. You can't just focus on that or you can't focus on, you know, this kid, he, he really has depression. But if the kid has ADHD or dyslexia and you don't focus on that, the kid, he needs help all the way around. When did you start taking medication? So I took meds uh, after I got diagnosed in college at Syracuse in the PhD program. And I did not like the way the meds I had. You know, again, you're talking, this is 95, 96. So what they understood about meds probably is nothing like they do now. It's like the cell phone I had back then compared to now. I mean, there's like night and day. I didn't like the way the meds felt. They made me feel jittery and nervous, dry throat. I used them to study through the comps. But as soon as I got off the comps, I was like, boom, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with the meds. And when I went back on meds is when you guys were in elementary school, you know, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grades. Those were very trying times for me. They were very tough. Your mom was working on tenure, right? So there's a lot of stress in trying to be supportive for her. You know, by the time I got here the second year, I was a full professor. Oh, so, okay. yeah. I am, you know, my job security was really good, but your mom was struggling with, you know, getting her uh, her writing chops down and understanding what she needed to do. And she did, but it took a while. So I spent a lot of time supporting you guys. And it was very stressful, particularly in the morning. You know, early in the morning, the toughest time, you know, you, you said, what, what would you say to parents? The toughest time with parents, I don't care if your kids don't have uh, learning challenges, but the morning, toughest time. And bedtime, toughest time. Those are really tough. And I found myself you know, raising my voice to you all guys, being impatient with you all guys, stuff that this is not normally me. And then it was like one day, I don't even remember if I was in a car, if I was listening to something on the radio, but something said to me, you got ADHD. Go get some help. And I went into uh, the psychologist uh, at the healthcare place that we use. And I said, look, I have a diagnosed disability, brought the diagnosis with me. I got young kids. It's really stressful, and I need some support. And um, we, she put me on the medication, and it was an immediate difference. Matter of fact, I can even tell when I am getting short in patience or irritable. I can, I can almost tell and say, wait a minute, did you take your medicine this morning? Or, you know, I can just kind of tell. The same way I can tell when I'm hungry. Like, I don't let myself get really hungry. I don't let myself go with lack of sleep. Uh, I was working today down in the basement. It was really stressful working on paying a water bill online. It was really stressful. And my timer on my watch went off and said, you need to move. So I realized I had to shut it down, get out, and walk around. So, yeah, the medication. It's And when you guys are away at camp or something like that, or I'm away on a business trip, I tend not to take the medication. It's usually at home early in the morning or late in the afternoon, that I will take the pill as soon as I get up. And I, if you if you notice, I, I don't know if you realize this as a strategy. I think your mother does. I get up usually anywhere from an hour to two hours earlier than anybody else because I got to wake up mm-hmm. because I know my mind. So I have to get up. I have to do exercise. And I would recommend that. You know, It's going to be harder when you're a teenager to do this, but I would recommend – some morning exercise to anybody who's got ADHD, dyslexia, any of that. Because once your brain starts flowing, 
and you get like um, like dopamine flowing, it's just easier. So usually when you guys are up, I'm like, hey, hey, I'm like, I'm ready to roll. Um, but I, I have to do that. So yes, medication I went back on. I think when you guys are up out of the house or you're older, more mature, the stress level is down, I probably will go off medication. I'm pretty sure. Are you surprised to hear that? I mean, I, I didn't know that you didn't take it for that long of a period yeah. after grad school. What would you suggest to a parent who has a kid who is more resistant to the idea of taking of, meds of or taking meds or even to the idea that they have ADHD or depression? The child tested and the, te- and the child showed positive for ADHD. The child was doing terrible in school. The father called me up and said they diagnosed my very similar he had a very similar approach to uh the diagnosis as my mother now keep in mind i i'm going to say this and i'm going to try to make sure i stay on track there is a reason why african-americans are suspicious of mental health practitioners oh of course yeah i mean people were being sterilized and the Tuskegee institute there are a number of studies and that have shown how african-americans have been used as guinea pigs by by the healthcare profession so there's 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 Good reason why black folks are paranoid. So that parent called me up with almost like, you know, a paranoia about they want to put my kids on medication. And I just don't think it's, I don't think it's a good idea. And I know that you have ADHD. I want you to tell me. I said, look, knowing what I know, yes, it could be that they're paranoid. But I would try it and see what happens. Try it. See what happened. And sure enough, they put the child on medication. Mm-hmm. And the child's grades went from being in the tank to, like, on a roll. And, and has consistently been like that since they've been on medication and treatment. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say to parents, it's not just medication. The, the, I think the area where we have dropped the ball, and it's dropped the ball because of a lack of African-American male healthcare professionals that we thought would be the right person for you, mm-hmm. trying to find those people. Yeah, if I was somebody out there and I was thinking about, you know, what I want to do in the healthcare profession, if you're an African-American male, I would seriously consider becoming a therapist or psychologist. Oh my yeah. gosh, the shortage is ridiculous. I mean, if you got a kid that's resistant, I think it's actually a lot harder than having a parent that's resistant. Simply because you want to be normal when you're a kid. You want to avoid anything that makes you not normal. So that's a struggle to um, admit you need help. I remember at Syracuse, it was required. Every football player had to get their ankles taped before practice and games. Every, it, was, it was just preventive medicine. And I think that's probably still the case at most football programs, Division One programs across the country, that, I mean, literally, every player, both ankles are taped before you get on the field. And think about that. That's a lot of tape. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But it's preventive. If you watch some college football games, every offensive lineman has those oh, braces yeah. on, right? And what do they do? They prevent you from, from – it, it prevents you from having somebody sideswipe you and having an ACL blowout or mm-hmm. something. It, so these guys are all wearing these knee braces 
And some of them don't even really. They don't even. Most of them don't. They just coaches. You got to wear it. And so I've tried to frame mental health and the support that you need, whether it be medication, school therapy, as that knee brace or getting ankle tape. And I know if my medication, I've had times where I forgot medication and I'm out for the day. I'm with the family and things get real stressful. I mean, another thing you probably know, and again, everybody's different. I keep a pair of earplugs with me all the time. When the day gets to the end of the day, the volume for whatever increases for me. So it it becomes like information overload. In the morning, it's like that. You know this because you're with me. Every church service, every church service, I have earplugs on during the praise and worship because it's just too loud for me. And it's probably normal for everybody else. So trying to let teach the child that you're doing what's best for you and everybody is different. And if they can understand that and that this is not about you being abnormal, everybody's different. I mean, my wife is my exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. So what am I going to do? Run around and try to convince her that she's wrong? She's not wrong. She's different. Mm-hmm. And to try to say to the child, there's nothing wrong with you. You are different. And difference is not bad. Difference is just difference. You know, when it comes to choosing colleges, every school has its advantages and disadvantages, and it's got to be the right fit. So much of life is the right fit. You know, I, I don't think that there is a cooker-cutter situation. I have two kids. They're very different, and I have to treat them differently. And it's really hard, I think, for kids to sometimes say, you know, I want to be just like everybody else. Not everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. How about coaches? What? Oh, that's a good one. What, do you, what would you suggest to coaches? The best coaches understand every player is different and coach them different. I mean, seriously, if, if you're a good coach – you understand quickly, you know, if you're a defensive back coach and you have 12 defensive backs, you understand you may have two corners, but they're very different and you have to coach them very differently. Mm-hmm. It takes time to do that, but I think the same way parents can't co- can't teach all the, their kids the same way, you can't coach all the kids the same way. I think coaches, you have to be aware. I certainly am aware as a college professor there's some people I just got I got to work with them differently, and sometimes you don't have the luxury of having a lot of time. But if you are serious about coaching, you got to start studying and thinking about, you know, what it's really you understand what motivates kids. A lot of the things will change when you get to full from the cortex development. There's no doubt about that. But you also, with introspection, with reading, you learn how to be comfortable in your own skin. A coach who can help you figure it out, understand what triggers you, and think about it in the right way. One of the things you learn when you get somebody who can teach you something, you go, oh, wow. Like one of my students uh, just last night in class, he was this software on the computer to, to use to, to do citations, footnotes. There's a soft, there's literally a button you can click and it creates it. Because he did not know, he was manually putting the footnotes in, which would require probably double the amount of time to do the same work. 
And the only reason he did it is because he didn't know and he wasn't secure enough to ask for help. And once I figured out what the problem was, I intervened, I helped him, and now his workload is greatly reduced. Think about the number of people with mental health-wise like that. They don't know, and they're too insecure to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing more work to keep themselves together. And because of that, their life is more difficult. Good questions. Mm -hmm. I'm hungry. So we'll, we'll end it at that. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com.